Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis this morning. As we continue our study of the life of Jacob, we will be in uh, Genesis chapter 31, beginning in verse 17. I don't, I don't know if you like car chases. This is the close we get to in the Bible. It's like a camel chase, so it's very exciting. Um, and my, I, have a, I have a 13-year-old boy who's sad he can't be here for daddy's camel chase sermon. So um, we need to pray for our teens as they're returning back from camp even now. And we praise God that they had that opportunity and trust that uh, God worked mightily in their lives, even as we ask him to work in our lives now. So uh, Genesis 31, beginning in verse 17, hear now the word of God. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or or bad. Our Father, we are thankful for your word this morning as we get to consider. We pray that you would help us and bless us in understanding uh, this passage in front of us. That we would see something of how you uh, care for us and protect us and deliver us, even in the care and protection of Jacob and his family. So, Father, we do pray for our teens as they uh, travel home now and uh, will be here in just about an hour or so, we trust. And Father, the, the time that they spent in your word, and even uh, memorizing and meditating upon uh, scripture uh, this weekend, we pray would bear great fruit in their lives. We're reminded that the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we pray that, that something of that would be true in the lives of our youth group. The scripture that they now have hidden away would lead them into paths of righteousness for their great joy and for your glory. And now we pray as we come to your word, as we see in the psalmist, open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold the wondrous things in your law. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. amen. It was on a, a foggy winter night in 1699 when a stately uh, vessel was sailing off the coast of England and the navigator announced that they were approaching the infamous Eddie Stone Reef. Uh, which had caused, uh, up to that point, uh, uh, untold number of shipwrecks, uh, costing many sailors their lives and uh, thousands of pounds of cargo that would be uh, dropped down to the bottom of the English Channel. The Eddystone Reef was a, uh, a series of rocky pinnacles that would come about five feet below the surface of the water. And so they're invisible to the eye, but very deadly to wooden sailing ships. Well, in this particular event in 1699, a, a watchman called out on that foggy night. They saw a light just off the starboard. And the captain stared through the fog at a glowing, glowing beacon, and suddenly he realized that the rumors that he had heard were true, that they had built a lighthouse on the Eddystone Reef. Now, it's known as the Eddystone Lighthouse, built in 1698. And it was up to that point one of the greatest achievements in civil engineering it was a lighthouse, first lighthouse, ever fully exposed to the sea. It wasn't built on an island. It was built on a reef that's underwater nine miles off the coast of England in 1698. And lightkeepers would live in that lighthouse all winter long, continually replacing the 60 candles that when they burned down and feeding the massive lantern. And in doing so would save many uh, ships from destruction. The first year in which it was constructed, 1699, there was not a single shipwreck on the Eddystone Reef. Well, like the Eddystone Reef, I use that as a metaphor for the, li the, the lives in which we live. It seems 
to me, and increasingly so, that we live in treacherous and dangerous times. And sometimes that treachery is just below the surface. We can't really see it. I'm not really referring to physical danger, but I think there is a great deal of spiritual danger out there. I think uh, we know this to be true as we look at the lives of our uh, many friends that we have. And I trust you, uh, my brother and sister in Christ, know of, of dear ones that have made a shipwreck of their lives uh, because of sin. Sometimes we believe we're navigating safely only to find ourselves thrust upon unseen danger, temptation, and transgression. And I think we see something of that in Jacob's life. You remember we left off with Jacob. He had um, just been told by God it's time to return to the promised land, spending now 20 years in Haran, in the foreign country. And you recall that he gathered his wives together and he told them of God's greatness and he, and he told them of how God had provided for them and he told them how God is calling them back to Bethel, uh, just where uh, Jacob first met God and I believe where Jacob uh, uh, placed his faith in God and was saved. And his wives, you gloriously, they agreed to, to leave and to go with Jacob. Now there's a problem though. Remember the problem? It was Grandpa Laban, okay? So Jacob's uh, father-in-law, uh, Rachel and Leah's uh, dad, he's kind of the prince of this land. And we saw that he was not, not very happy with Jacob anymore. Um, and he will not be happy when uh, Jacob leaves. And so what you have here, I think, is a picture of someone who's really enslaved. And he's told by God to go to the promised land. And as he goes, he's going to be chased down by an army. Does that sound familiar? Of course, you remember the book of Genesis is written by Moses, and in many ways written to help the wandering Israelites while they're in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they must have been thinking, did we make the right move following this guy? And so Jacob's deliverance at this time, I think, would have been a great encouragement to them. That Jacob, God delivered Jacob, and so he will deliver Israel, as we see really what commentators have noticed for years now, uh, an exodus in miniature in Jacob's life. Right, Israel went to the foreign land, few in number, multiplied greatly. So Jacob went to the foreign land alone, and now he has uh, uh, four wives, if you will, and uh, 12 children, uh, 11 boys and one daughter at this point. And we know as Israel was enslaved to the mighty Pharaoh, so Jacob is enslaved, in some sense, to Laban. As Israel plundered Egypt's wealth on their departure, so we see Jacob, in some sense, uh, his wealth is abounding, causing Laban's sons to declare, we saw this in, in verse 2, I believe it was, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And as we see today, just like Pharaoh pursued uh, Israel with violent intent, so Laban is going to gather his army uh, with that same intent. And of course, in both stories, we see God's great protection. Israel protected against Pharaoh and his army, and so he'll protect Jacob. And by the way, the, the parallels will continue even beyond the text we consider today. Uh, remember that Israel, once they would enter the promised land, would, would find it's inhabited by powerful people. And so Jacob will enter the promised land and he will be greeted with another army led by his estranged brother Esau. And yet uh, we see it once again God providing. And I hope you see something of God's deliverance of you, his protection of you, brought about by the Lord. I think in many ways this story not only points us to the exodus uh, from uh, Israel, from Egypt, but shows us our own journey as well. That we too, in many ways, have found ourselves enslaved by sin, and yet God in his great work has redeemed us from that. And now we are wandering in a, in a time of wilderness as we head to the promised land, which the Bible calls, of course, heaven. And so let's consider uh, Jacob's exodus here this morning in three scenes. First of all, we see scene number one, uh, deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin. We Begin here, of course, in verse 17. So Jacob arose and sent his sons and his wives on camels. He drove, all, all, drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possessions that he had acquired in Paddan Aram uh, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. So Jacob packs up his family, sends them on the way. Okay, we're moving. Okay, it's time to go. Now, uh, do you like moving? Anybody like moving? Okay. Uh, I don't know, if, I mean, if you could imagine this, right? So Jacob's moving, he's moving his two wives, his two girlfriends, he's got 12 children, 12 and under, right? And they're all moving on camels, okay? So one of the reasons you'll never get rid of me as your pastor is I can't imagine moving again, okay? <laughs> and I only have one wife, okay? I, mean, I don't even have a girlfriend on the side. I mean, and I got cars, all right, and we're not moving on camels, and so off they go, 
Um, they're, they're on the move, but you notice that they do so somewhat deceitfully. Look at uh, verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Gilead. We know the shearing process would, would take days. And so um, while grandpa's busy shearing the sheep, Jacob says, now's the time to tiptoe out of town. Now the question is, is there's different, to be honest, there's different evaluations of Jacob right here. And, and maybe you land someplace different than I do. The question I think is, is Jacob being wise here or is Jacob being cowardly? Uh, I, I think, based upon the language that we see here, that this is, this is cowardly. Uh, you notice, uh, he's, you see there in verse 20, Jacob tricked his father. Uh, most translations, and maybe your translation says this morning, Jacob deceived his father. Literal rendition is he stole his heart. Um, it seems to me like the Jacob we've seen in the past. Remember when Jacob got estranged from Esau and he ran in the middle of the night and sneaks out. Your brother wants you to kill him, wants to kill you rather. Uh, he doesn't stand up to Esau. He doesn't make amends with Esau. He doesn't seek his forgiveness. He just runs. He flees. We see the language that he's fleeing again at least twice. Of course, this time he's surrounded by injustice. This is not a problem of his own creating. But he seems, in my opinion, to use deception in order to get out of it. I, I would have liked to have seen Jacob, who has now received a word of the Lord to go, trust God to keep his promise, to bring him back to Bethel, which he said in Genesis chapter 28, and go up and, and, and let Laban know, hey, we're leaving. God has called me to go, and, uh, and we're off. But instead, he, he sneaks out in the middle of the night, deceiving his father-in-law. It seems to me he's repaying sin with sin. I don't know. Do you, you ever do that? You ever, you ever someone sin against you, and you come back and... And sin against them. <laughs> yeah, that's my boy right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, someone hurts you and, and, and you hurt them back. Right? Someone's ugly to you, you're ugly back at them. Someone cuts you off, you yell at the windshield. Okay. Yeah, we do, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder if there's a better way for us. Uh, sometimes we, even in that sin that we come back, we, 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 are a, we somehow able to justify it. Well, you know, if you did this to me, I wouldn't have done this to you. Um, and I think we see something of this in Jacob. Well, if my father-in-law was nicer to me, I wouldn't have to sneak out or whatever it is. What I want you to notice is that despite Jacob's sin, that God's going to keep his promises. I find that really encouraging. You know, I think it's Paul who says, e even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen? Well, God's going to deliver them in the midst of sin, the sin of deceit, perhaps, and you don't think Jacob's sinning, certainly you do think Rachel is, I trust, as you see the sin of theft there in verse 19, that Rachel stole her father's household gods. So pr prior to the departure, Rachel goes into daddy's house and he takes the, the little idols. It's sad in light of what we saw at the, la at the last verse we considered, verse 16 last time. Remember uh, when Rachel and her sister Leah, they said, now whatever God has said, you do. Like, we want to follow God. Let's, let's go do what God says. And, and now we just see three verses later, she's stealing in, uh, sneaking in and stealing these idols, these small carved human figures. And we'll see she'll put them in the saddlebag. Now listen, if somebody can steal your God... You need a new God, okay? Okay, I'm not very impressed by that God. Because I, you would think if you're God, you could say, hands off, lady, right? Don't touch me. Um, but evidently, they can't do that. I don't think it's a very impressive God uh, as she grabs them and puts them in the saddlebag. We're not sure why she does this. There are really kind of three explanations that I have uh, seen. One, it just might be out of spite to her daddy, who's treated her so poorly, right? Uh, uh, so she, she knows her dad loves these idols, so she's going to take them. It might be for protection. We saw last time that Laban practices divination. And he's actually gaining uh, insight into Jacob's life. So maybe she thinks if I take the gods, then daddy won't be able to use them to follow after us. I, I think uh, probably most likely is the third explanation is that she's an adulterer. That she actually believed in them. That she failed to trust God alone. She, and so she's going to say, well, I'll follow God, but I want to follow these idols as well. You know, I want to hedge my bets here. 
And so we have Jacob's deceit and Rachel's theft and her idolatry. And yet God's not going to give up on them, even as they stumble out of town into the promised land. That God is, God is going to work to deliver them from this sin. He's going to sanctify them. I appreciate uh, Craig's prayer so much this morning, even as he conf- confessed, as we confessed with him, that God, we have fallen short of God. I mean, you did this week, didn't you? You sinned this week, right? You committed transgressions, I trust. Praise God, he's not going to give up on you, right? That he's patient and long-suffering, and he'll continue to sanctify you and deliver you from these things as we seek to grow in righteousness. Well, off they go, and they're headed westward, unknown to Jacob. Uh, Laban's gods are jostling around in Rachel's saddlebag, and that's going to place them in great danger as Laban and his posse are now in hot pursuit with their swords drawn, as we consider scene number two, uh, protection from harm. Um, Note verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, okay, so the third day he's been shearing sheep for three days, he rides home, he discovers Jacob's gone, Rachel's gone, Leah's gone, the grandkids are gone, all of Jacob's flocks are gone, his idols are gone, and Laban is not pleased, as you see in verse 23. He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him to the hill country of Gilead. And so uh, he, he grabs his kin, he assembles his servant, and they run Jacob down. So Jacob has a three-day head start. He's pushing them as fast as he can, I trust, but he's got 12 kids. Uh, he's got all these flocks, right? And so 10 days after they leave at Gilead, that is 300 miles away, okay, uh, Laban finally sees Jacob's camp. He chases them down. Now, why is he chasing them? Because right? he wants his daughters back, wants his grandkids back, wants his flocks back? Or does he want to harm Jacob? Well, look at what happens before he actually gets to him in verse 24. We see God kind of intervene in the story, don't we? Not kind of, actually does come and intervene as we see. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. We see this wonderful protection that God comes to Laban in this dream. And he says, hey, be careful how you treat Jacob. I'm warning you, be careful. God shows up and protects Jacob. Now, you would hope that would have a profound impact upon Laban. Remember, Jacob first encountered God with that dream at Bethel back in Genesis 28. And in response, became a believer. Laban now has a dream of God in Gilead. And he doesn't repent. There's no faith. There's no seeking after this God who has now spoken to him. You know, some people say, well, you know, I wish God would show up and, 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 and reveal himself. Well, even if he would do that, we still might not believe. I mean, Jesus showed up. People saw the miracles in which he committed, uh, uh, heard his teaching, experienced his love, and they still put him upon the cross. It's not a matter of showing up, evidently, as you see this, of course, here in the life of Laban. As God warns him, don't touch Jacob. He's mine. He's under my protection. I wonder uh, how many times God has protected us. I'm not sure he's showing up to our enemies in dreams and saying, hey, uh, lay off this person. I do wonder how many times, or maybe in heaven we'll realize, we'll get to heaven and and realize, oh yeah, God God had protected me here and God protected me here, God protected me here, that God is continually taking care of us. There's this wonderful peak in uh, Zion National Park called Angel's Landing. It's out in southern Utah. They call it Angel's Landing, the story goes, because the first people who saw it uh, only thought angels could get there. It's so uh, inaccessible. Actually, anybody can get there now, as I did in 2006. The problem to getting to the top of Angel, uh, Angel's Landing is you have to hike upon a ridge that at some point is about three feet wide. The ridge is about, uh, is about a half mile long. Some places it's 10 feet wide. It gets down to three feet and it comes back out to five feet. And, and, and does one of those things as you hike up to the peak. And well, the, the problem with, with the ridge is on the left-hand side, there's a sheer drop of 1,500 feet. And on the right-hand side, there's a sheer drop of 1,200 feet. And the wind generally blows through the valley. And so it's somewhat intimidating as you're hiking on this ridge and you look over. I mean, 1,500 feet, that's a long way down. Okay, 1,200 feet, also a long way down. And so you, you climb up, uh, up to Angel's Landing. I recommend it. It's glorious, by the way. Um, but what they have done now is they have put a chain, a real thick chain. Like the, the, the links are like this. And you kind of hold on to that chain and work your way up all the way uh, to the top of, of that peak. 
And, and, and I wonder if, that, if God has a, a chain for us to hold on to. Or, you know, I think Christians often were living in dangerous places and in treacherous times. And there are snares of sin and there's trouble all around. And I, I think God ha- is keeping us to himself. He is holding us holding on to us. I wonder how many times we would have slipped and fallen and, and made, a, made a shipwreck of our faith. But ultimately, we find ourselves secure because of God has this, this amazing, long-suffering, steadfast commitment to us. And here he comes, and we see that commitment to Jacob. Despite all that Jacob's done, it says, don't you touch him. It's somewhat stunning, isn't it? That Once again, I'll, I'll remind you a couple times of this. This is his father-in-law. And his father-in-law has to be divinely restrained from violence. And he is on the verge of murdering his son-in-law. And that's what, what greed will do to you, as we've seen in this man. Right? I wonder how many families are full of hatred because they squabble over some possession. The book of Proverbs says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts the Lord will be enriched. Well, God comes and and protects Jacob there, you see in verse 24. Jacob, of course, knows nothing about this. All he knows is that Laban's army has caught him, as you see in verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, with his kinsmen, pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead. And so there they are. They show up at night. They could see each other's camps. I mean, there's nowhere to run. I cannot run this guy. Uh, That must have been a very tense night, a very tense morning, as Laban walks into Jacob's camp with his arms posse. And he gives this little speech. The speech begins there in verse 26, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me, that you have literally uh, deceived me, right? You've deceived me, which, uh, you, I mean, <laughs> you, you do realize this is Laban who's saying this, right? Because Laban, Laban never tricks anybody, right? I mean, he, uh, God forbid that he would actually trick anybody. I mean, he's a total hypocrite. How dare you trick me, the guy who snuck his daughter into uh, this man's tent, like Laban has this strong moral compass all of a sudden, and he clearly sees other people's sin, but totally oblivious to his own sin, right? I mean, you might think, Jacob, well, how about the 20 years you've been tricking me and been ripping me off? Instead, uh, what we get from Laban is uh, you left without my permission, right? You see that? Uh, we read it on in verse 26, and driven away my daughters like captives with the sword. You capture my daughters. No, no, no. It was actually, actually, by the way, they're my wives, to begin with, and I didn't steal them. We actually got, got together and they said, we can't stand being around you anymore. We don't want you to play with the grandkids anymore because we're afraid they might turn out like you. And so we all decided as a family, we need to get out of here. No, Laban can't see it. He should come up and say, listen, I, I can't believe you're running from me. What have I done? I've neglected my daughters. I've neglected my, I, uh, my grandchildren. I've dishonored my son-in-law. My own family is running from me in the middle of the night. You think that might be a bell to bring him to recognition, but you'll notice Laban never grows. He's just this flat character throughout Scripture. There's no, no change, no development, right? Uh, he, he won't repent. He will not trust in God. As you see, uh, he gets rather ridiculous, I think, in verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me why? So that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Now I I think you could cue the eye roll here, to be honest, okay? Um, You know, part of me, if I'm a little skeptical, but he's like portraying the loving but wounded dad here. I just wanted to throw a party. You know, we're going to get a bounce house and some snow cones and maybe a clown. And All right, you didn't give me a chance. Well, I, I, reality is I've been giving you a chance for 20 years. Right? He's a total manipulator. In fact, he can't keep it up. Notice what he says. I think you see Laban's real heart here in verse 29. And uh, it, is, it, it is in my power to do you harm. Right? Your father-in-law ever say that to you? Right? Because I thought we are talking about a party. Weren't we talking a party? All of a sudden now you're telling you could kill me? I mean, that's the real Laban. Right? He didn't chase them down with balloons and you know, donkey rides. He chased them down with an army and swords. He says, I was going to kill you. Or at least I was going to hurt you. Take your wives, take your children, take your flocks, take your servant, take everything you have and leave you with nothing. But God would not allow it. As you see in verse 29, 
God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. Jacob now hears how God is protecting him, that it wasn't his deceit that is going to protect him, but it is God who has given him his promises. And eventually he gets down to perhaps what he ultimately wants to talk to him about there in verse 30. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, which is <laughs> only partly true, I think. But why did you steal my gods? Okay, it's here he ends this monologue. What he really cares about are his idols. So the, God, the real God spoke to him last night, and he still wants his little gods that don't speak to him at all. He's got God's word ringing in his ears. He says, I want my idols back. And Jacob clearly is not ready for that request. I think he puts his wives in, at least one wife in, in particular danger in his response. He assumes he has no idols. So Jacob says in verse 31, answered him and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. And certainly he would have if God didn't intervene. Verse 32, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have done, what I have that is yours, and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So he has no idea they're in Rachel's saddlebags. Uh, so uh, we, we, um, he says, we, we don't have your gods, and if you do find them, you could go ahead and kill that person. Put the thief to death. Now, Rachel, in some sense, is putting everything at risk by not telling Jacob, by lying to her father, by stealing these idols. But God protects her too, as you see in verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, right, this first tent, and then to Leah's tent, the second tent, and to the tent of the two female servants at Zilpah and Bilhah, right? So he's going into all the tents, looking, but he did not uh, find them. Okay, And he went out of Leah's tent and entered into Rachel's. So that, <laughs> does that sound like fun to you, by the way? You know, Grandpa and his men uh, rifling through all your possessions, right? Let's unload the moving truck. I'm going through every box, right? And the, the, it seems like there's this tension here, one tent after another. And finally, we're coming uh, to Rachel's tent. And we realize they're not in Rachel's tent, actually, in verse 34. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's uh, saddle and sat on them. Laban uh, felt all, all about the tent but did not find them. Now, once again, I, I'm not to belabor the point, but... <laughs> If someone can sit on your gods, I, once again, you need a new god, okay? Okay? Right? That, I mean, that's what, like a big brother does to a little brother. They, you know, sit on him to, to keep him down, right? And here she is. She's sitting on. God is intentionally, I think this is intentional. He is disrespecting these gods. He is showing how foolish it is to follow these gods. They are worthless. They are impure, right? He's foreshadowing, I think, how God is going to treat the gods of great Egypt with his plagues and treat them with contempt. And even uh, greater contempt comes with Rachel's excuse. And I, I won't uh, get into the details here, but I'll just read the verse for you in verse 35. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry uh, that I cannot rise before you for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Right? So, um, you know, <laughs> Laban's trained his daughter Rachel well, right? I mean, she, um, she's pretty good at the trickery game as well, uh, this woman thinks these totems will protect her. They won't. They're not going to protect her. God will, though. Um, God's going to be with you. Right? When Jacob was in Bethel, he said, God said to him, I'm going to be with you, Jacob. Wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. He didn't say it's going to be easy. He didn't say, hey, by the way, you'll never be chased down by an army of men. But he said, when you are, I will be with you. I will care for you. I will keep my promises. I think we need to hear that. I don't know, maybe you're in the place of trouble. Maybe you're in the place of fear. Maybe you're in the place of struggle. You need to hear that God says, I didn't promise you these trials wouldn't come, but I did promise you I will not leave you. I will walk with you during these times. I mean, I think what we want to hear is that the health's going to return or the strike's going to end or the relationship will be repaired or good things are going to come. That may be what we want to hear, but what we need to hear is that God is going to be our protector. That we will never be lost from him. We will never be taken from him. We will be never removed from him. But we need to hear God say, listen, no matter what happens, where you go, how it comes upon you, where you find yourself, I am going to be with you. You won't go alone. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and God says, I'm going with you. 
and Joshua enters the promised land and God says, I am with you. And Gideon goes to fight the Midianites with 300 men and God says, but I am with you. Of course, that's a promise given to all of us in Christ. I am with you always, he says, even to the very end of the age. And he is going to keep his promises. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if trouble has chased you down. I don't know if you are in dark days in your Christian life. It's not all sunshine, is it? You are, even there, with God. You are never without his care. He will always see that you make it, ultimately, to the promised land. So let's consider scene number three, the provision of peace. And so uh, he's ransacked his camp. I mean, you can just imagine, right? There's just clothes. There's just stuff everywhere. Just throwing up stuff, looking for the uh, idols. He's got these 12 little kids. You can see their frightened faces. Grandpa and his men are rifling through their stuff. And, and, and Jacob just looks around, and it seems to me, for the first time, Jacob, Jacob comes to a breaking point. He's had enough. It's like 20 years of pent-up frustration, of running away from his problems, of being kind of cowardly and sneaky and trickery. And he, he, he just has enough. As we come to actually Jacob's longest speech you'll find in the Bible, it begins here in verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. We have not seen that yet. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Right? We see courage. He said, what have I done? What's the problem here, dad? In verse 37, he says, for you have felt through all my goods what have you found of all your household gods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide be between us. You see what he's saying? Let, let's see it. Show me my fault. Show, show me the sin that I've done. He says, come on, everybody. Gather around. Grandpa's going to show me what I've done against him, how I've harmed him, how I've wronged him, why he chased me down with his army, why he's threatened to kill me. Come on. Come on, Grandpa. Show it. What have I done, he says. No more negotiating, no more counteroffers, no more trickery. Just show me my sin. Right? In fact, he says, I'll show you your sin, by the way, because I worked for you. I worked my tail off for you, as you see in verse 38. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not, uh, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss myself from my my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. He says, listen, I worked for you for 20 years, and every shipment that showed up broken and damaged, I took it out of my paycheck. I locked up at night, and when the thieves broke in and stole, I took that out of my paycheck. I didn't even charge that to you. In verse 40, he says, there I was. By day, the heat consumed me, and, by, and the cold by night, and my, and my sleep fled from my eyes. In other words, I never called in sick, Right? Sometimes I work through the night. In other words, listen, I, for 20 years, I'm working three people's jobs. He's, he's laying out his integrity. He's laying out his reputation. And no one can, can deny what, what he's saying. I mean, don't we want this reputation, Christians? Right? We don't want the reputation of people that come in late, take the long lunch hour, steal from the company. Right? Jacob says, listen, I, I've only been honest with you, and you have only cheated me. Verse 41. These 20 years I have been in your house, I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. You've ripped me off. And then finally, he comes back to God. I love this. I love to see this in Jacob. After all we've learned about Jacob, it's great to see him pointing to God. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. God provided me, he says. You never did, but God did. God took care of me. My God is good to me. And he is taking care of me. He's taking care of my family. He's protecting me even from you. And the old deceiver finally begins to give credit to God. God is doing this for me. Right? The, one, the one who's always planning, always scheming, always taking the initiative finally says, listen, God is caring for me. I think this is what we're made to do, by the way. I, I think this is what we're supposed to do in life. To, to get, be quick to give praise to God. 
to thank God for what he's doing in our life and to point his glory. I, I even love that uh, uh, Ben uh, this morning read from Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, what is it? Do you know what it is? Glory. Why, why is it? It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why is it not the whole earth is full of his holiness? I mean, they're praising him about his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. They didn't say glory, glory, glory. It's holy, holy, holy. That's interesting. That's something interesting to think about. That's what I was thinking about when you said that, Ben. But you notice that the, 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 the angel here is saying God's glory is everywhere. And we, as God's people, are made to draw attention to it, to point to it. I recently read of a, of a pastor who tells of a, tell a story at a retreat in Montana. Uh, he he would, was spending the summer there at this retreat, and um, outside his window, uh, a tree swallows had made a, a nest. And he, he watched them make the nest and then lay the eggs, and finally three chicks hatched in this nest that was about four feet above a lake. And eventually, uh, the mama, once the chicks got old enough, started shoving the little babies towards the end of the branch. And just pushing and pushing and pushing. And the first one uh, got to the end of the branch, and mama pushed, pushed a little chick off the branch, and, and it fell. And somewhere between the branch and the lake, uh, the wings began to work, and it, and it flew off. And then uh, she goes to the second, and pushes, 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 and gets to the end of the branch, and uh, the little chick begins to fly. Well, he said the third chick, to do the same thing with the third chick, and he reached the end of the branch, and the chick's grip, uh, the little bird uh, grip loosened just enough to swing downward, but to not let go, okay? And so the little chick is hanging upside down. This is a parable of some of my children, I think, but um, anyways, gripping for dear life, and then the mama began to peck the feet of, of the little chick, right? Until finally... Uh, the pain of mama's pecking was too much to bear, and the little chick let go, and he too began to fly. And he, he, he explains, and I think this is, is helpful, um, that the mama knows what the chicks were made to do. And there was no danger in forcing them to do what they have been designed to do. He writes, birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp. They can walk and they can cling. But flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living their best. Right? Listen, there are many things you could do. right? But walking by faith and giving glory to God, that's what you're made to do. Right? When you begin to praise God for what he has done and give thanks to him, even in face of opposition, well, that's when you begin to live your best. And Jacob finally gets it. Laban doesn't, by the way. Laban's stunned by this outburst, unable to challenge it. Everybody knows Jacob's work ethic. And so all that's left with Laban is this bluster. It's like the last gasp of a, of a balloon when you're letting out the air. Look what he says in verse 43. I mean, this really gets to his character, I think. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are mine, the children are mine, the flocks are mine. All that you see is mine. Right? I mean, you can see him pointing, right, to his daughters. They're mine. Your kids are mine. All your animals, everything you own, it all belongs to me. Right? It's all mine, he says. I, this, this man, apart from Christ, he is an evil man. He is saying to his son-in-law, I'm your master. You're my slave. It's not your family. It's my family. It's not your company. It's my company. But there's nothing he can do about it because God has intervened. And so he gets to the point where he proposes a peace treaty. It's like a, it's like a ceasefire. There, uh, read on in verse 43. But what can I do uh, this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come, now let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Right? And so it almost seems like just when they're about to brawl, Right? They're about to draw their swords. And, I mean, it's like the Avengers and the, the purple guy with the big chin. They all show up, right? And they're about to fight. And then they decide, hey, let's just go our own way. Okay? That's what's happening here. There's no fight. God's keeping that. And so let's just, let's just reach a detente. Let's establish the terms of our relationship going forward. And this is, this is through God's work. Remember last time Jacob alienated somebody. Is he left an offended brother behind. 
That's going to come back, we'll see next time, uh, and trouble him. So let's, let's, let's not do that. Let's establish the terms of the relationship going forward. And so they enter into a covenant, verse 45. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it uh, Jagar Shahadusa, Shahadusa. And Jacob called it uh, Galid. Uh, Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and, and me uh, today. And so uh, they, they're putting these stones together as a permanent memorial for this covenant, a pile of rocks, which will be a reminder of the vows we have made. Okay? So there, there's a sign of the covenant, like, like a wedding ring is a reminder of the vows you have made, or baptism is a reminder of the vows, the oath you have made to God. And so they each give the pillar a name. You notice that. I won't try the, to read it once again. Um, but uh, both mean, in their own language, I imagine, a witness heap. It's a, it's a heap that bears witness to the oath that we're about to take. And you notice it's Laban who says the oath. So reading on verse 48. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. So there's the oath. Uh, you know, have you heard of the Mizpah blessing? Mizpah blessing? It's taken from Genesis 31, verse 49. Sometimes, I don't think you see it as much anymore, and it's probably good. Uh, sometimes you would see it on wedding napkins, right? So this would be on wedding napkins. The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sights. So there used to be a Christian necklace where it had two pieces, and you, you, you would have the oath on it, and you each wear half. The Lord watch over us while we are apart. That's not what's going on here. You notice that. Okay? This is why we read the context of Scripture. We don't pull Scripture out of its context. Context is everything. This is not the Mizpah blessing. This is the Mizpah curse. Okay? Don't use this at your wedding. Okay? Okay? He's not saying when we're apart, may God bless our friendship. He's saying when you're out of sight, I, I can't trust you. I don't know what you're doing, but God is watching you. Right? And this is not a blessing on friendship. This is kind of a curse on their, on their uh, disdain for each other, right? God's going to watch you, and God's going to watch you while we're out of sight. And then you see his great fatherly concern there in verse 50. Again, this is Laban. If you oppress my daughters, because he's the great, uh, he's been taking such good care of them, by the way. Or if you take wives besides my daughters, because heaven forbid we have too many wives, right? Um, although no one is with us, God is witness between you and me. Right? And so uh, they say, oh, listen, okay, this is the oath. This is how we're parting. Then they establish a border. Verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, see the heap and the pillar which I have set before you and me. This uh, heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness. And I will not pass over this heap and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. Right? So they have a border now. Like fences make good neighbors. Right? I'm worried that you might come back with an army one day. And so we're going to have a border. You stay on your side. I stay on my side. I mean, this is sad, isn't it? It's two decades. They spent time together. And now we say, we'll, we'll never cross this line. We'll never meet again. It's wise, I think, even though it's sad. Right? There might be times in relationships you have to go your own way. Right? You have to, there might be times you have to establish boundaries with, your, with people in your lives in order to have peace. Well, they finish this off by swearing to God. Verse 53, I believe it is, um, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So here, here they're swearing by God. We, we still do this, don't we? We testify in court or I think the, even the president now takes the oath of office and in doing so he says, so help me God. All right, we place, we still today, we place our hands on, on, on the Bible. You go to court, do you still place your hand on the Bible when you testify? I, I, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and no, uh, nothing but the truth, so help me God. All right. and sadly, we don't even know, <laughs> we're, make, we're putting our hand on the book, but we don't even know what's in there. Um, and we don't, if, the stuff we do know is in there, we don't believe what's in there, we don't believe it to be true. And we're happy, you know, to pass laws that violates what's in there, but we still swear by it for some reason. I find that interesting. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have an impulse within us to swear by something greater than ourselves. Right? So when we really want to keep what we, what we swear by a higher power. And so Laban, you notice, swears by the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of, uh, of their father. That, if I remember correctly, that's Terah. 
Now, Nahor is Laban's grandfather. Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. And Nahor and Abraham are brothers. Okay, so, the, of course, that makes Laban and, and, and Jacob uh, distant cousins. And so, we, so th that's who we're swearing by. Now, I want to be clear that Laban is swearing by multiple gods. He is not saying the God of Nahor and the God of Abraham are the same God. We know this. Here we go, 15 seconds of grammar. Hold on. Um, verse 53, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers, judge. See the verb judge? That's in the plural. So the, these gods will judge between us. It's not a singular. The verb is not singular. It's in the plural. And so he's saying, um, he's listing as many gods as he come up with and saying, okay, they are going to judge between us. Notice Jacob will not, he's, he's let Laban dictate the whole terms up to this point, but will not swear by all these gods. He only swears by his God. And he uses this very interesting phrase, the fear of Isaac. You notice your, your Bible says capital F, right? It's a way to refer to God. Um, it only will be used one other place. We already saw it. It's there in verse 42 when he says, the God of my father Abraham, that is, uh, I, if I could paraphrase, the one my father Isaac Fears. It's literally the dread of Isaac. Um, there is a verse in Jeremiah, I think it's the King James Version, that refers to God as the dread champion. I find that interesting. And so Isaac's God is to be feared, right? And maybe we need a little fear at this point of God when we're establishing this kind of covenant. Um, but what I find it particularly interesting is that Jacob is not going to follow Laban's pattern and swearing by multiple gods. He will not compromise his faith, nor should we. And so I, I would suggest to you, if you're ever asked to pray in public, as I am occasionally, and occasionally I am asked to pray a non-sectarian prayer, I refuse. I, I don't do that, right? Because I, I have a sect. It's called Christianity, okay? And I am not some generic religious professional. I am a follower of Christ. And so I pray as Jesus taught me to pray. When I pray in public or private or in your presence, I pray to the Father and I pray in the name of Jesus. Just as Jesus has said, we pray in my name. And I would encourage you, Christian, when you have an opportunity to pray, you pray as a Christian, not just some generic religious person. You pray in the name of Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells us many, many times that we should. So I don't even pray in God's name. In God's name I pray amen. I don't do that because the Bible tells me I pray in Jesus' name. I shouldn't be ashamed. If you want me to pray, I'm going to pray. Yeah, I'll be happy to pray, but I'm not going to pray to some generic God. I'm going to pray as a Christian, and this is how Christians pray. And so lets, uh, Jacob lets Laban dictate all the terms. We're not going to take this pagan oath. He draws the line. Um, we should seek peace in this world, but let's not pretend all religions are the same. Let's not, not deny the God in which we worship in order to gain favor of our neighbors. I have two more verses. We're almost done. And Jacob, verse 54, offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. And so uh, there's this sacrifice here. And Jacob, Jacob's now sacrificing, not Laban. You notice that? Because Jacob understands if I'm going to make a covenant with God, I can only uh, enter in that relationship with God through a sacrifice. So he's going to enter into that covenant, but he's going to shed the blood of this animal. We'll find out in the book of Leviticus that they are to place their hands on the head of the animal and confess their sins onto the animal, transferring their sins onto the animal, showing that this animal is being sacrificed as a substitute in our place. And Jacob's doing this because he knows God is holy, and he knows himself to be a sinner. So he needs a substitute to pay for his sin if he's going to approach God in this way. This is central to their faith. It is central to the Christian faith that there must be a sacrifice to pay for sins in order for them to be forgiven. Laban, no sacrifice. Just like every other religion in the world, all the other world's religions are religions of self-righteousness. They need no sacrifice. They just have to live a good life. Christians understand that we must have a sacrifice in order to approach God. And then there's this covenant meal. You see there at the end of it, verse 54, they ate a meal. Uh, and spent the night on the hill country. That must have been a fun meal with, with uh, dad, you know. Uh, grandpa, okay, let's, let's eat some food together. They got the memorial meal, uh, excuse me, the memorial pillar, the covenantal meal. I think the meal's an expression of their peace. They're not going to harm each other. I think it points us forward. I think all this is pointing us forward to a meal that, that we had last week. I kind of wish we were having it today. The Lord's Supper is this covenantal meal that symbolizes peace with God. Not, not a peace of nonviolence, 
but a peace of true fellowship and love as the bread pictures that Jesus has broke his body for us and the cup points that he's shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, that God has made provision for peace with us, between us. We were alienated with him, right? The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even as we end this morning, I ask you, do you have peace with God? Are you at peace? I mean, do you, do you know God as Father? Has he forgiven you of your sins? I mean, if, he, if, he, if you don't know God in this way, you should do what Laban should have done. Repent. Ask for mercy. Place your faith in God. That the blood of Christ might cover your sins too. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I tell you, Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. He has come to die and pay him, uh, uh, himself as a punishment, a penalty for our sin. And now he offers us forgiveness through his sacrifice. Well, we come to the last verse here in verse 55. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Kiss his grandkids for the last time. Chris's kisses daughters for the last time. And Laban at that point walks off the pages of scripture. And all he had to do was repent. Let's, can we work this out? I'm sorry. Listen, I've messed up. Um, I, I've mistreated you. It's clear. Can you guys, can you forgive me? Can we find a way where, you know, we could spend time together? Laban shows us, I, I think, you know, <laughs> this is not just, uh, a Laban sin. This is reoccurring. Some, in other words, some men are so proud that they would give away their children and their grandchildren rather than give away their pride. And, and his kids cannot stand to be around him. They have moved far. We are moving away to get to just to get away from you. But he still decides to keep his thing. I mean, it seems like there's two options. I mean, as we, as we see these two men, I mean, there's two options in front of us. Even today, we could, we could repent and trust in God and live like Jacob and walk off with Jesus into the promised land. Or we, we could keep our sin and walk off alienated from the people we love like Laban. Now, Jacob still has a long way to go. He's, he's going to have ups and downs. But he's finally trusting God. He's been delivered by God. And he's giving praise to God. God's done this. God is keeping me. God took him enslaved, led him on this exodus on the way to the promised land. And you're on that journey as well. We, we are headed to that promised land by God's grace. And so let's trust him and praise him along the way. Father, we're thankful for your word and the encouragement that it is to us to seek after you, to give you praise, to trust you in our life and in all that you're doing. And Father, I, I pray that we would be encouraged just to see how you bear with uh, your people and, and protect your people and deliver your people and care for your people. And Father, uh, may that encourage us as we walk into this life, as we, we too, we wander this wilderness on our way home. Uh, may we know that you are with us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.